Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. Today, we'll be talking about how we're approaching graphics for uh, NAB. NAB, of course, is going to be a big, big week for us. <laughs> so we have a lot of people, 50 people working on the project, uh, 15 on the ground, 35 coming in, 10 countries represented. So it's going to be quite a thing. So, um, so we'll talk a little bit about how the graphics, uh, how we're putting those together uh, in the second hour. And uh, right now we're going to go ahead and uh, jump into your questions. Um, Jason, go ahead, take it away. Diamond Ray from the UK. Midlands writes in, what is the fastest workflow on a Mac to boost the audio of an H.264 AAC video by 16 decibels, preferably without re-encoding the video element to save time and preserve quality? I have 12 18-minute videos to fix in this batch and more expected. Go ahead, Bill. I, so I do this a good little bit. Unfortunately, I work inside Final Cut, which has some limits on it. And, and so it's going to depend on the software tools you have access to. You can usually boost things by up to maybe 16 dB if you have the right software. I often have to run things through twice. I'm just always really mindful of the fact that if you're boosting that much, Pay good attention to your background sound levels because sometimes you boost the signal that much, you boost the noise that much as well, and it would be much better not to go that hard. Just some yeah, thoughts. it. I mean, you 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 definitely can do it. Um, I think the one thing that I think that you can actually in compressor, uh, if I'm uh, let's see here, I don't know. Actually, I don't know if you can if if compressor has a an audio effect that would affect levels yeah i think there's one place i use compressor occasionally at the bottom of the compressor menu there's a, a little tiny tab if you're in audio mode and working with something like an aaf file that allows you some control but i don't i don't remember being able to put in decibel equivalents i mean i think that what you probably could do this is a little bit of a hack so i'm, I'm tempted not to not to put it in here, but uh, you could theoretically go in and take open up the EQ inside a compressor and just increase all of them evenly across at 16 dB, and it would probably just move it up, bump the whole thing up 16 dB. Because compressor has a way that you can set set the video to pass through, so you can give it a video, and it'll just it'll just reencode the it'll just copy the video over, and then just do whatever you're doing to the audio. So that's one one thing you might want to look at is using compressor for that. I have to admit that if I had um, these uh, files, I would probably still do them in something like Final Cut or Resolve, opening them up, doing something manually, and then moving them out. I probably wouldn't try to do something automatic because, as Bill said, you're moving this a lot, and I'd want to hear it before I before I uh, exported it. So I don't think I would go through a, a generalized process for this. I know it's time-consuming, but I, I'd, I'd still worry me. Now, one thing you can do, by the way, is in... In Resolve, you can open all of them in one track, set them all, listen to them all, and then export each clip individually in one fail swoop. Just say export all these these clips as files, and you can do that as well. So that might be a way for you to look at it, listen to it. I don't think you can do that in Final Cut where you can just export all the clips individually, but you can in Resolve. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the the quick the key for me here is you said the fastest workflow. There is another one that I use often when I'm trying to get something at a consistent thing and do it right. Clangfront, I think that's how it's pronounced, is a plugin manufacturer, and they have a piece that will set it will go through and you play the entire track and it analyzes everything, and then you can set a target 
decibel level, and it will make sure that within those parameters, the average, the RMS average across the whole thing is exactly that. But it, boy, it takes some time because you have to play it in real time so it can analyze everything. And that's defeated by your what's the fastest workflow. Yeah. So good luck. Let us know, uh, Simon, how it goes. Uh, next question. Guy Cochran writes in from Seattle, Washington. Live View Studio announced, what does it do? Um, I was only able to look at it a little bit before the show. Um, I had some meetings. <laughs> but, but, the, uh, uh, but what I, what I do, what, does, what it does, looks like is the, the big problem is you get all these ingests. And a lot of times what we've done in the past is have, you know, we're having Live View sent back to our facility. A lot of people do that as well. But what if you have multiple Live Views and you're trying to create a show out of it? I'm going to jump from here to here. I want these people to talk to these people. All of those things are, are, are a thing that's a challenge right now. And a lot of people have built some cloud solutions for it. I think that what we're seeing here with Live View is them just rolling that up for you. So you have a basic way to build a studio, build a show in the cloud and have the Live View devices, whether they're those are connected to Ethernet or cellular, deliver the, that footage uh, to that studio uh, in the cloud. And so I think that that's I think that's the solution there. It's brand new. And um, oddly enough, we're planning to go to the Live View booth and uh, and check things out. <laughs> you know, their Live View is uh, helping us out with our NAV coverage. They're going to be uh, covering that. So so I think that we'll we'll definitely make our way over to the studio. We'll get more information about it next week. Now, next next question. Andre Dole writes in from Berlin. What's the easiest, most cost-effective, and reliable way to scrape a digital presentation slash meeting with audio and video? I have an M1 MacBook with loopback audio hijack, NDI tools, or a PC with vMix and NDI handy. Go ahead, John. Darn, you had to say reliable, didn't you? The easiest and cheapest way is to screen cap it via OBS or, or, um, or ScreenFlow. That's the easiest, cheapest way to do it. A lot of us use uh, use Zoom ISO to grab the feeds and then store store those feeds uh, isolated. That's the better way to go, Bill. Yeah, and, and on the Mac side, QuickTime will allow you to do that. If you have QuickTime Pro, which is m on most of the machines out there, you can do a video and audio capture. Uh, sometimes I do it with Audio Hijack uh, and just to make sure that I'm targeting the audio correctly, but it'll do it all in there, so it doesn't really cost anything. It's probably on your machine already. And if you if you do if you have the M1 and you get and you get the Zoom ISO, Zoom ISO can deliver those as NDI feeds. So you basically you can send. We we've already done tests with this, so you can take your M1 and pull those Zoom ISOs in, and with or without the loopback, I mean it'll send. I, I believe it'll send it with embedded audio over. So you have S, uh, NDI and you can deliver that to vMix. So so um, and that's just over a network. So the two of them are on the same network. Uh, it, it's going to be, it's all built into um, Zoom S, uh, ISO and it can deliver all of those feeds to to vMix uh, relatively efficiently. It is more overhead than an SDI output from the Mac M1. So you, you I don't think you can do quite eight um, on a base Mac, Mac. You might be able to, but I, I the stats are on the liminal site. I can't remember the, what they are off the top of my head because I wasn't paying attention to NDI very much, but I think that you can get at least four um, out of the M, of a base M1 and with the new M1 potentially with the M2, uh, then potentially eight uh, eight outputs um, without really taxing the, the the Mac at all. But that's how I would approach it: is not to try to do it all on the PC. I would do it on the Mac, send NDI over the over the network to vMix, and you should be good to go. Um, next question. Cindy Drozda from Erie, Colorado, writes in: I want comms in one ear and Zoom in the other. 
Both ears have to be wireless. I'm currently using a Linsol KZZS10 earpiece with a KZAZ10 Bluetooth adapter. Can I get two of them and pair to the same computer? Is there a better way to do it? Go ahead, Bill. I don't know if it's better, but this makes me think, you know, AirPod Pros do have this second person. You can you can have two people listening to the same thing. So my my suspicion is that if you got two pairs of AirPod Pros, split them up and gave them to two people, one half of one set to one person and the other half of that set to the other person, you might be able to get two separate feeds out of that system. Yeah, if you're to on try. A, if you're on a Mac, uh, you should be able to just use again to go back to loopback. You could have loopback and basically um, pipe those those two sources into a, a single source and put it in a stereo pair. <laughs> so just you know, so just put one on left and one on right channel, and you should be able to you know if if you pull them out of center and put one in, in each channel, you should be able to use a single return and be able to hear it. So you would just need something like loopback to to control that um, that process. Uh, yeah. Um, next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Oh, I'm sorry. All you, Bill, just, go ahead. No, no, no. I just <laughs> reacted. I'm sorry about that. Go, Jason. Yeah, right. Paul Wall, who's from Austin, Texas, writes in, what's a good low footprint standalone desktop microphone stand? Go ahead, John. I got mine from Guitar Center. It's the one I used every day. And it's this little guy here. And I've tried several of these. And this one seems to work the best. It was like 19 bucks or something. Guitar Center. Yeah, and and I the lowest footprint, you, you know, you can definitely have a mic stand. The lowest footprint is going to be a low profile uh, mic arm. Uh, that's going to have the least amount of impact on your on what you're doing. That's what I'm using here. This is not the least expensive version of it. This is the this is a uh, OW uh, OC White Ultima Two, but you can also get the much less expensive Elgato uh, LP mic arm uh, that's the low profile mic arm and that's about 100 bucks and what i would recommend is is adjust is attaching it to a, another desk next to you which is what i did uh, that way you don't have any vibration at all um so i would i would you know you can use a mic stand we use mic stands when we're doing something that's not permanent as soon as you start thinking about i'm going to be here every day then i tend to start leaning towards arms um and i like low profile arms i don't want to have the arm coming down like this and getting in the way of my monitors and you know, all those things um next question PJ Asher from Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in a local venue has a Blackmagic TV Studio 4K and wants to move from Studio 4K cameras to BMPCC 4K cameras because of the better low light performance. Can they use the TV Studio 4K to control packet 4Ks so they can keep their existing lenses? Go ahead, Nick. Oh, can't hear you, Nick. Still can't hear you. Got a little audio issue there. Um, I'm, I'm going to dance while Nick is uh, working on that. So the um, uh, the uh, you should be able to use the the existing ones. But basically, what you have to do is um, there shouldn't be any issue if you're going from the Studio 4K to the Black Magic. The main thing you're going from is SDI to HDMI. And so what you have to do is um, you have the bi-directional converters. So the bi-directional converters are, uh, there's uh, HDMI to SDI, and so it'll be a dual. Now, it's not going to be 4K coming out of the B, the Blackmagic um, Black 4K cameras. I'm trying to, the studio camera, oh, yeah. So there isn't, so I guess the Blackmagic Cinema cameras are not 4K. <laughs> so so they are for they're not 4k out there so you can use them with a studio 4k 
The issue is, is that what comes out of them, out of the HDMI is 1080. So there's the 4K and the 6K, but that's their recording format, not their, uh, so it's not the, it's not a output. So the, both the Blackmagic cinemas are 1080p. Now, if you're going into a switcher that has the, you know, the, the, the Terranex uh, inputs, then you'll be able to just do a 1080. It'll scale up if you're doing, if you're going to 4K, but just note that those cameras do not do a uh, a 4K output. They only do 1080, but you'll use the bi-directional converter. It'll be HDMI to the camera and then two SDIs, one in, one out the, the, to, to control it, of course. And Nick, did you want to add anything to that? Did you, did you get it working? Yeah, hopefully, is my audio working now? Is it, it is. Okay. All right, great. Uh, the uh, only thing I would add is to think about if you'll ever want to do anything with green screen with these cameras, because the micro version of the Ultimat will also do the uh, bi-directional communications. So we're oh, going to spend about $100 on the micro converter itself. It's only a couple hundred dollars more to get the uh, Ultimat Mini. And that's specifically designed to go to the pocket cameras over HDMI. And it has the SDI in-outs that'll connect to your uh, TV studio ATEM. That's great. Uh, next, good, good, good tip. And Nick, it's good to have you here. We haven't had Nick here. Um, Nick's going to be, I'm trying to get Nick to come on Tuesdays so we can answer your computer graphics question. So by the way, if you have com uh, questions about computer graphics, uh, Nick is a great source. <laughs> so, so anyway, so uh, there's a lot of things that I call Nick and I go, I'm trying to think, figure this out. And so, uh, so anyway, uh, so definitely um, uh, those, we're going to start leaning more and more into that on Tuesdays. All right, next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, Apple can log into your iPhone and control it. Can I do the same thing for someone who wants help with their iPhone remotely? I don't, uh, yeah, I don't think you can. Go ahead, Jason. You can't control it remotely unless there's something in, in the remote control app that I'm unaware of. What you can do is FaceTime and then screen share. If you do that, then you can walk them through whatever they need to touch, and that's going to be a happy medium. I kind of reject the premise of the question here. Yeah, it's controlling it remotely is, is something that Apple doesn't like to do with the with your iOS devices. There's a lot of controls there to keep it from, from you being able to do that for a bunch of security reasons. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I think developers may have access to something like Apple Remote Desktop in, in that kind of circumstance, uh, but I don't recall ever seeing it work on iOS. For Mac, it's pretty easy. Right. And a lot of circumstances, service providers who are authorized and know what they're doing can grab control of your entire laptop, but iOS is a little different. Yeah, I agree. Uh, next question. Alex 4D Golner writes in from London, NAB for editors. What non-ML related features are you looking for? Apart from ML, what is the big driver of change in post tools? Good, Bill. You're asking the $64,000 question, Alex. Uh, a lot of us have been uh, cognizant of the fact that Apple has their development of some of their tools for video editors um, like all the other software, has been a little bit shallow the past couple of years. We've seen little increments and everything is working fine, but not a lot of innovation. I was interested to note that uh, maybe eight, nine months ago, there was a lot of advertising from Apple for people to join the team. It takes time for those people to get up to speed and start doing things. We all kind of understand that a lot of the 
post-production world is going to be migrating to the cloud increasingly. Uh, cloud access speeds are getting bigger. Uh, remote work is a huge part of the uh, the world right now. But I haven't talked to anybody who said specifically, I mean, every time I go online to the forums and people are talking about what they want, they're going back to the same things they've been asking for for multiple years. And I don't think some of those things are happening. These software, I think, and this is true of all of them, maybe with the exception of Avid, uh, they got to the point in the last three or four years where everybody was uh, getting the work done they needed to get done, and there hasn't been a lot of dissatisfaction because they're all kind of stuck at the same place. I'm excited. I hope we hear something about uh, new things. Um, machine learning and, and artificial intelligence and those kind of tools are certainly coming to editing because they can do a ton, but I haven't heard much out there. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, yeah, and and some of the things to think about in terms of the machine learning side is that as an editor, you don't necessarily see that it's in machine learning. Uh, there are a lot of tools that are now in integrating advanced rotoscoping masking tools that are able to do roto work for hair and such. Uh, Foundry Nuke has been doing a lot in this area, and I'm looking forward to seeing that more and more make its way into real time and editing. Uh, I also think that uh, there's a lot more going on in 3D real time graphics. So uh, I'm always interested in seeing what uh, zero density and Pixitope and these uh, Unreal Engine derivative uh, tools are doing in, in the area of broadcasting and uh, post-production. And I think that uh, more and more of the video editing tools will likely start to get towards adopting things like USDZ natively uh, as more and more tools start adopting that standard 3D format um, moving forward. Yeah, I, you know, I think that 3D fitting into, into our pipelines, I think is really interesting. And I think USDZ is one of the, obviously the leaders. One of the real troubles with any of the 3D app, apps that go in that we're kind of putting into those systems is aliasing. So a lot of times if they're doing real-time rendering or trying to do real-time rendering, you end up with a little bit of jagged edges along the along the geometry. And that aliasing is a problem for Unreal solutions for broadcast. It's a problem for, uh, you know, we, we see it all the time unless you're oversampling. So if you render something out at 8K and then bring it down to 1080p, it looks great. <laughs> you know, but if you don't do that, we oftentimes, if we're running at that resolution and we see this in motion, we see it in other things that, that support 3D. So being able to have better anti-aliasing algorithms, I think is going to be something that is, you know, being a, we have the horse, horsepower. So an M1 Mac can definitely oversample in real time. And it's just a matter of of using that that data to make that actually happen. So having that 3D in integration, uh, we're seeing a lot around, as Nick said, a lot around rotoscoping. Um, so to be able to grab onto objects. And if you look at some of the stuff that's out there, it is a little bit of the machine learning. You're seeing a lot of things where that's that's made available um, to folks where I can, I can just select something in the video and it just grabs onto that object and I can it, it automatically creates a mat for it. It moves forward. And so I think those are some of the things we'll see from an ML perspective. Um, for a workflow perspective, you know, folks like me just want better tools to deal with, you know, HDR and and uh, surround and other things like that are things that are important to us. And it's something that uh, I think Resolve is doing really well and nobody else is. <laughs> so so when, we, when, we, when we think about, I want to do an immersive, I want a unified package that's going to allow me to work with immersive audio and allow me to work with HDR video. And I want control over those things. Right now, there's only one app to use. Like, you know, and that's a, you know, that's, you know, for us, I mean, it's great. And for, it's great for Blackmagic. It's not great for everybody else. Um, but, but if you start, as we start to look down that path, 
um, you know, Resolve is kind of pulling away in those high-end areas. And I think that's going to be a challenge for both Premiere and Final Cut and Avid. Um, to like, how do you solve those issues? And maybe they don't. Maybe they just continue to publish their projects to Resolve to be finished. But when you have an app that's free for a lot of people and it's doing your final your final mile, that should scare a lot of people a lot. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the other thing, I just in the middle of this discussion, I was thinking, you know, I'm thinking in the long run, content creating is going to be less important than content refining. I think these all the automation processes that we're seeing happening so rapidly now, getting to 50%, I've said before, and maybe it's 60 or 70% has never been easier. And I expect those tools to migrate into our nonlinear editing uh, applications over the course of the next five or 10 years. It's that last piece. And I, I think if I was starting back in the industry again, I would not pay as much attention. And this is tough for me to say, actually, to the to the core slap together a rough cut skills. You still have to know how to do that. But I think the people who are going to have a, a bright future are not those that can simply create and edit, but those who can refine and edit using aesthetic judgment. And that's where I would be paying attention. I would be studying art and design and things like that as much as the mechanics of putting together your base timeline because the machines may end up doing that for us. Just a thought. I actually think that it could get much more intense when we look at some of the stuff that that, that um, artificial intelligence is doing. You could go to a point where you say, uh, you know, you get you assemble all the clips roughly where you want them, and then say, "Cut this like this editor, cut this like this editor," and you, you just it'll just it'll just start putting those together. Will it be as good as that editor? No, and will it be as good as a high? You know, the big thing we have to look at with all of the all of the AI stuff is that it will probably do it within the next two or three years, it'll do many tasks as well as 90% of the population, <laughs> you know, and if you're in, it's why we, we have to keep on working on our skill set. We have to keep on working on our, um, our craft, uh, as, as if you want to do, keep doing what we're doing in, in many parts of many industries, you will have to consider learning as part of something you do every single day to stay ahead of all the other things that are happening. And so, so I think that that is, you know, you're not going to be able to lean it. You're not going to be able to relax anywhere. If you want to do that, if you want to relax, you need to buy a farm in Iowa and, and get enough land to, you know, grow some organic, you know, rutabagas. Uh, next question. Con Foltz in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania writes, and the companion app allows you to load and save XML files with the routes of a 40 by 40 video hub. Does anyone know if you can restore them after you load the XML file? Go ahead, Jason. There are two different things here. So there's the routing table of the video uh, router, right? And then there's the companion app that my understanding was pulled that table from the, um, yeah, from the video hub and then allows you to make buttons with it. I wouldn't trust it. it I didn't know it was a feature to do this with the companion app alone. And even if it was, I would, I would want to back up and restore the, the routing table for my video hub completely separately. Good, Nick. Yeah, so you can communicate with the routing hubs over Ethernet just using a generic tool. Um, I think is uh, it's, ah, TCP Talk or something like that. I forget exactly the name, but you can uh, give it very very basic commands and get a text file back as to what the current labels and the routing 
is. And so you can save that away and then upload that result uh, later on. So uh, like Jason said, I, I wouldn't necessarily leave it to Companion to take care of that for you. It doesn't take very much time to look up what the commands are, how to connect to the uh, hub via the TCP command set, and uh, then basically just download the file directly. And you're using Blackmagic's native commands that way. And, and then you have that set of files. They're just text files, and they're ready to use anytime you need them. Yeah, and um, uh, real quick reminder that you can ask questions anytime. So um, go ahead and ask your questions in Mukana as well as make sure to vote on those questions. Make sure you, you're, as the producer, able to decide what we talk about and when we talk about it. So go ahead and vote and ask those questions. All right, next question. Brian Shand in Sydney, Australia writes in, for end credits in a live stream broadcast, such as an Office Hours production, is there an agreed upon order of roles? I go ahead, Bill. No, there's not, in something at that level, there is not. Now, the order of uh, credits in Hollywood and for big productions is a matter of tremendous precision and negotiation. Whether uh, a particular actor's name is above the title or below the title, uh, department heads and how much bigger they have to be than the regular department, all of those things have tremendously argued about and negotiated for standards, and they are very particular about them. But in the world of live stream, it's new enough that, you know, I think people kind of generally follow that kind of old Hollywood, here are the above-the-line producers, and here are the people who have more clout and more responsibility, and below them are the line workers who actually get the work done. That stuff is all kind of defined from that Hollywood system, but in terms of any rules about live streaming, I've never seen any. I, I, I find credits to be... Um like my, my favorite credit, I'm, I'm, I'm credited. It doesn't show up on IMDb because I think they don't write, they don't consider it a proper credit. But when I get credits, I used to say, I just want innocent bystander. <laughs> That's my favorite one. So I just don't, I find, I find titles to, to be just a, you know, just a, a pain. So, so I just, just, you know, how I view these. So people can do whatever they want with, with those, with those titles. I, I think that the Hollywood's got some goofy, I mean, the amount of drama that gets created around titles and, and, and the credits and everything else. I think that I just, at some point checked out, like I was like, just leave me out of this. Like, I don't, I don't care. I, you know, I, I really don't care. So, so like, I just worked on the project. I don't really care what, where I sit in the credits. Um, and I, I was always in the credits that were so deep that there was like five rows of them and you could see my name going by and, you know, you know, and, and whatever. So I, I don't, anyway, I, I, hope we don't get into long discussions about that for our, for our live streams. Um, a bit, yeah. Next question. Um, you. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio writes in, I haven't updated my M1 MacBook Pro to Ventura yet. I usually wait for a dot release or two or when software requires it. Am I missing out? Should I wait longer or until needed? Go ahead, Mark. Well, I think that the reason for doing it sometimes is for security, but you do want to wait a week and kind of pay attention to what's breaking and what may not work with the use that you have. And then on production equipment, wait a little bit longer and kind of just bring equipment in and test and see what, what works and what doesn't. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, what car makers do you think have the best looking and most functional user interfaces? I was in a Hyundai Sonata recently and was very impressed. Go ahead, John. 
You ever listen to MacBreak Weekly and start yelling at it because they're not talking about something that you know in your head? That's what happened last week when they were talking about CarPlay. And and if any manufacturer thinks that they can do what Apple, do you remember what Apple showed at, at WWC last year, which is CarPlay 2 on multiple monitors? GM trying to duplicate that effort in a car? Forget about it. There's no way. The, the stuff that's that they're working on is just amazing. So... Uh, I think they're defensive. I, I think I think they got defensive because of the uh, um, because of what Apple's doing. Like, oh my gosh, you're going to take over the whole thing, and they they push back and said, "I don't want. We don't want people to take our our, our whole car over." Um, Go ahead, Nick. Uh, yeah, I, I have a little pet peeve with my Honda uh, constantly, immediately kicking off music on my iPhone as soon as I turn it on. So I can't even. Yeah, don't get me started there. Um, the uh, Rivian uh, is an electric. Uh, pickup truck company and uh their entire ui is developed in unreal engine <laughs> and and so it, it's it's pretty impressive looking i don't have a rivian uh but just looking at it has a, a really nice wide screen now i mean tesla has some amazing screens and, and touch panels and in their cars as well of course um but it it's just impressive to see uh, how much 3D graphics are being incorporated into these user interfaces. I mean, it's, we're, we're getting closer and closer to the kinds of things we've seen in science fiction over the past 10 years. And so, um, hoping to see more and more vehicle companies like incorporating these larger displays, 3D graphics. Um, I know that several of the car models today, uh, I forget, uh, who has it right now will stitch together all of the exterior cameras and give you that 360 view. Um, it's actually many cameras just looking at the ground around the camera, but then they construct essentially a helicopter view for you over the uh, car when you're in reverse or you're trying to do your parallel parking. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot going on there and I, I'm looking forward to seeing more. There you go, Bill. Yeah, I was just had the privilege of a friend of mine that met in another state, and uh, he he drove in with a hydrogen hybrid, one of the new ones, and I think it was Hyundai, although I might be wrong about that. Um, its displays were pretty stunning, and I think that the newer, uh, more leading edge that they know their customers are going to be pretty tech savvy and looking for something like that. Um, it was intuitive. Uh, it was very modal, but it was pretty easy to operate. So I do think they're putting a lot of effort into their interface uh, functions and it was a good a good experience. I didn't get to drive it. Uh, got to ride around in it for maybe twenty minutes or so, but it was pretty impressive. Next question. Andre Dole writes in from Berlin. Getting back to my scrape a meeting question. Unfortunately, it's not in Zoom, but a proprietary platform, and I'm participating by browser. Can I desktop or browser capture, including audio via VMix? Yeah, I think that you can, there's a screen capture to NDI that you're looking for. So you're, you, and, and so the screen capture to NDI is what you want. And then you're going to want to have that browser, preferably Chrome, go into a full screen mode um, with that and then use the screen capture to NDI. And then you'll send the NDI to VMix. Next question. Jack Ruppel writes in from Breckenridge, Colorado. Since object-based audio is metadata, has anyone associated motion tracking data of an object to object audio? Uh, yes. <laughs> so other people are working on that. 
of being able now that a lot of where that movement's going is game engines and so game engines are paying attention to you know they're they're doing more and more work with getting atmos to be able to be in a game engine where you can where the pers the the perspective of those uh of those locations of those objects are are being are moving audio objects around so um so definitely people have been talking about a lot of that um and and getting that in but you're absolutely right that you can mocap a lot of things that are moving around something and that data can easily be translated uh, even in real time uh, to a uh, to an Atmos object. So it's just a matter of, of of the function of how you get from here to there. But and I don't know of any publicly available tools, but there's there are proprietary tools that are definitely doing that. Uh, next question. James Haldane from Vancouver writes in during hybrid events, we often find people walking near the PTZ crates. Uh, creates a vibration that can be seen on the video. Any solutions to help with this? Good, Bill. We've been dealing with this in multicam, particularly if you have to put uh, audience cameras out anywhere near where they are. And in the beginning of my career, we tried to build kind of uh, plywood boxes to put a tripod on, and we moved to spider pods that were less vibration prone. Honestly, it depends on the floor that you're working over. It depends on the kind of traffic. It depends on, you know, I, there are a couple of rules that I had. Number one, we moved away from those boxes really quickly because people would sit on them and move our cameras. Uh, the only thing that really dampens that kind of vibration is mass. And I know Alex has told stories about literally building huge sandboxes and things like that. And I, that resonates completely with me because it is such a difficult challenge to put a camera out where people are moving around it and decouple it from any vibration source, sources. Sometimes you have to go to those kind of extreme levels to get it done. And um, the spider pods worked well for us, but literally it's a matter of rigging and being very careful. And then some way to keep people from messing up your hard work to get it right. Yeah, so a couple of things to look at there is that one is is that you stanchions are are your friend. So stanchions are the little cables that, you know, or or ribbons that they put around things to keep people out. And a lot of times we'll push those stanchions away from from where our cameras are to try to get reduce that reflection. So that's the first thing that we do. Second thing is is to have them sit on a platform. A lot of times we are putting those cameras on a on a platform. The longer your the longer the pole that holds your um PTZ, the, the more it's going to want to vibrate. <laughs> so, so the shorter that is, the less the vibration because it doesn't have anywhere to swing. So um, we've even gone to as as short as hi-hats that are sitting on larger items because they're vibrate. It recovers from that vibration so much faster. So it's one thing, to, another thing to think about. But and then the, the next thing, if you start to and you can add all of these together, by the way, Another one is about an inch worth of neoprene. Now you can buy this in an industrial store, but you can also just stack up neoprene that you can buy it at. But neoprene will have a tendency to uh, reduce the vibration. It just absorbs a lot of it. So about a, more than an inch becomes unwieldy for a bunch of other reasons of balancing and everything else. But about an inch of it will absorb a lot of those things. Um, and then you can put a, a layer or multiple layers of, of sand you know, in there works really well. What Bill was talking about is I, we worked on a, on a, uh, on a project where they, they basically, if you think about a box, they built the box that we would normally have, which is typically about a meter high, um, or three feet roughly. And, uh, and it's also about that same square. And now this was for operators. So the other operator was back here. The person standing was here. The camera sits on this. Now, inside of that, what they did is they they actually, um, they had another box, but that box was made of concrete. <laughs> and so, so what it did is we poured, they, I didn't pour it, but they poured sand across the bottom. 
Then they dropped the concrete block into it, and then they filled sand all the way up around it, and then they and then they put um, uh, a top on it. Then they put neoprene on it. That under in no circumstances showed any vibration ever. It was genius. I had never seen anything like it. <laughs> so so the one of the tricks was is that they can't the you know one thing you remember with the box is that top piece has to be sitting only on that concrete, not on the. They can't touch the, this is a little goofy thing, but it can't touch the side walls. Otherwise the vibration comes back. So it has to sit on top of that, but it was, it was super stable. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but, but that was the, that's the only place, the only thing we've seen that in, in all environments make that work. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Nick. Uh, yeah. I mean, you covered some of what I was going to mention in that um, a lot of sound stages actually have their entire floor that you see is actually built on a little blocks that are embedded in sand so that in the construction process, the entire floor was a sandbox first, and then the floor was built over that. And it's, it's supports are built into the sand. The, none of the floor actually touches anything other than sand getting out to the uh, regular world. Uh, the only other thing I was going to share uh, along the lines of the neoprene is uh, this floor here is actually all gymnastics mat. And uh, it's, you know, instead of blue for doing tumbling, it's all gray and it's, it's pretty thick um, and it rolls up super easy. So uh, this entire floor is about $2,000 worth of the stuff. Uh, it's about 20 by 20, 24 by 24. And uh, it, that, that thickness of the rubber really does, as you mentioned with the neoprene, absorbs a lot of the vibrations in this entire building. I'm in a steel and concrete construction and I'm not on the ground floor. There is a subway that goes by in the street out ahead. Um, but this, you know, as long as it's on this floor, it's, it's really stable. And, and so that's a turnkey solution you can buy with gray or black carpeting already on top of it. And it just rolls up and goes into your truck. Go, Jason. Yeah, uh, they're the types I'm thinking, Nick, you can get them at Sam's Club and they're they're kind of interleaving. They have those little like jigsaw puzzle pieces and they, they work pretty well. Um, I'm going to state the obvious here. Uh, the more you zoom, the the I think it's the arc tangent. But, you know, the farther in you zoom, the more important it becomes by a factor of, I would say, Two to the no, not to the. I'm going to get the math wrong, but basically, it becomes even more important that you stabilize the camera. So, my, my you know, my first, second, and third thought is carefully consider the position of your PTZ because if you have that flexibility of panning, tilting, and zooming, you might be able to find a better place that's a little bit more out of the way. It might be harder to service, but that that may very well translate to um, a much better shot. Absolutely. And I will just note that um, anybody who's worked a long lens camera knows that a tiny move back at the pan tilt head will shift that point of view many, many feet. And that's what Justin, uh, Jason's talking about. Let's, uh, oh, Nick, you wanted to hop back in on it? Uh, yeah, just one other note uh, is that um, this is used in buildings uh, to combat wind sway and uh, earthquakes is, you know, hanging a sandbag from the 
underneath the base of your tripod. It acts as a pendulum that counteracts as well as adds more mass to your overall camera rig. So there's actually, besides just putting sandbags on the feet of your tripod at the bottom, if you're hanging a sandbag from that center column, it can actually counteract some of the inertia that's uh, induced by movement from around the camera. Absolutely. I second that. Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, SSL launched the System T for Music platform, which takes their System T broadcast console into the immersive music world. With Apple bringing Atmos music mixing to every Mac user with Logic, for example, will there be a market for such a console? I would imagine so. I mean, I, nobody raised their hand on this one, but SSL is such a, a long-standing name. They're a, they're a fine company, and they've been making consoles and other high-end audio broadcasts. It seems like they're kind of on a roll now. We're seeing a lot of stuff that SSL has engineered coming into the more mass market area, uh, as opposed to their early days when their consoles were only affordable by the big studios. So it doesn't surprise me. I hope that they can manage this combination of making things for the m more mass market and still keeping their quality high. No reason they shouldn't be able to, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. But yeah, I would imagine there will be a market for uh, for some kind of product in that line. Let's go to the next question. Tobias Moss writes in from Minneapolis, Minnesota. If you're going on a tourist trap for pleasure, what technological equipment, doohickeys, or smidgies do you still bring along? Camera answers are welcome, but curious beyond that. Nick, what are your thoughts? Uh, so one of the things I like to bring is a very compact 360-degree camera. So Insta360 makes some Ricoh, Theta cameras. They're, they're smaller than most television remotes, uh, but they capture 360 degrees. And uh, if you have a small, very, very, very collapsible tripod, you can set those out and, and capture 360-degree images and even shoot high dynamic range imagery. I think Alex was covering that a, a few days ago. And so those are really handy. They're really small. They don't take up luggage space. Um, I also uh, bring them for shooting video because you can very easily reframe the video afterwards. So there's you really don't have to put in a whole lot of thought. If you're you know walking through a scenic location, you don't necessarily know how much time you can spend there. Uh, you don't want to miss anything. You know if you if you move very slowly with these. Uh, you can reframe your rectangular video from them in post-production very easily. And then the other thing is uh, the pro level of iOS devices. Um, the pro level specifically because they have built-in LiDAR. And so, um, I, honestly, I, I was first introduced to Alex, I think, something like 20 years ago. And the, the skills that I were learning were were uh, photogrammetry, uh, 3D modeling, match moving, and a lot of the, the technologies that were, were high-end visual effects post-production that you couldn't learn anywhere at the time are, is now built into these phones. And the fact that you can LiDAR scan anything that you see of interest, it could be some uh, you know antique fountain or a statue or a facade, uh, unique stone uh, walls, fences, I mean, these are the things as a as a visual, visual effects and 3D artist, uh, getting that character, that texture from the real world is always interesting to me. Um, and 
Un the unfortunate side effect of all of this is that um, I'm constantly capturing this material for textures and modeling. And consequently, my wife has her own collection of photos. It's her own photo album called Pictures of Nick Taking Pictures. And I'm usually laying on the ground underneath a log, pressed up against a concrete wall, just shooting a pic. You know, there's this beautiful San Francisco Bay, and I'm trying to get pictures of the concrete on Alcatraz. Uh, so uh, don't bring too many devices. It, it can get a little addicting. <laughs> Good, Bill. Uh, boy, all that resonates with me, Nick. Uh, for me, I, I'm probably going to take my phone if I'm just going on a tourist trip somewhere because the phones are so fabulous now. I will probably take a very lightweight tripod. I have a Manfrotto B-Free that's carbon fiber that breaks down really small and it's really easy to travel with. So I'll probably throw that in the luggage somewhere and hope that I don't take it out too much. But if I see something really interesting, um, I always think to myself, is there any possibility that I will want to talk to anybody and that de that determines whether or not I take my basic audio kit which is really an H4N recorder and maybe a lav again that would be an unusual thing on a vacation trip but sometimes we do some fun stuff where I'll have my wife be talent and go out and describe something and it's just fun that's that's we're shooting for fun we're not shooting for anything else other than that um I might if we're doing that also bring a smallish pop-out reflector just in case she decides to, that she wants to do some little stand-up thing for fun. And I want to pop a little light on her face, which is always a good idea if you're backlit by the sun. That's probably all I do. But then, you know, I, I find this stuff fun, so I'm happy to do it on vacation. I have to admit, on vacation, I take very little. Uh, if I'm if I'm working, and it mostly limits me to what I can what I can do. Uh, so that I can enjoy it. Um, but I, I take my phone, obviously, and I usually I'll have a couple extra <laughs> accoutrements <laughs> over my phone. Uh, but but I, I don't go too too crazy. My Theta I take because I love 360 photos. I have 360 photos of me all over the world. I just take, I look up and I take pictures of them and I, and I have these shots of me going on planes and going on other things. And it gives you kind of, I, I feel like someday I'll look back and be glad I shot those photos. So I take a Theta with me um i don't i try not to take a lot more than that sometimes i take an audio interface for my phone so that i can grab things if i really want to um and if there's any sense that i might really need something i'll take an slr just because i want to take as nick said i want to take photogrammetry so i you know I'll, i went to seam reap in cambodia and took you know ten thousand photos of anchor watt which I can turn into 3D models, which I have. So, so anyway, so that's, but that becomes a little, that means I get to enjoy the experience. I get to enjoy this, the location again uh, down the road. But the thing that I use 99% of my time is my phone. Uh, next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. writes in, for exposure and video, which is better, gain or ISO? For example, on the Sony FR7, you could adjust exposure using gain in the web controller, or you can also set ISO in the camera menu. Is there a qualitative difference? Go ahead, Jason. Okay, the difference between these two is going to make you crazy, and really there isn't one. But gain is a measurement of amplification, and ISO is a standardized measurement of the film sensor's sensitivity. So gain doesn't necessarily correlate consistency, consistently to, um, to exposure across different camera makes, whereas ISO is designed to do exactly that. Next question. Uh, yep. uh, oops, sorry, was yeah, unmuted. Yeah. Uh, Robin mm -hmm. Cutshaw writes in from Atlanta, Georgia. I'd like to put a 5.1 audio setup in my office with discrete speakers. How do you do it? Geekier is better. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the the, um, the way that I'm eventually the problem is I keep on moving my uh, I keep on moving what I'm what I'm doing into the office to do office hour stuff. But I have an X32 that wants to be that thing uh, that wants to output to powered speakers. So I've got some little Yamaha 305s that I'm that I'm using. Um, uh, and then I so I have these little Yamaha 305s that I'm that I right now have in the office or a bunch of them in the office uh, to do other things. And so so I'm I'm balancing it, but my approach will eventually be an X32 uh, with a because it does Dante, and then it and then the, to the speakers. And I have enough speakers to do a seven one four, but I but they're in different places right now. So eventually that'll get all that'll sync up. But I like to have an XLR to the speakers and have the speakers self powered, so I don't have to think about how I'm going to amplify that. I can just get all I have to do is get get signal to them, um, and that's that's kind of where I'm going with that. Uh, next question. Alex Forty Golner writes in: Is WebGPU the cross-platform replacement of OpenGL that can be used on any app running on a device using any GPUs on that device? A threat to NVIDIA's walled garden? It will remain to be seen. Go ahead, Nick. So, uh, full disclosure: I do own a tiny bit of NVIDIA stock, so um, so understand that. Uh, but I don't think it's a threat. I think actually it's an advantage, uh, to all users and, uh, across GPUs. But I think there's a lot being done with NVIDIA GPUs that are going into the low level code and, and are, are very proprietary to those boards. And, and I don't think, um, this is a threat to that at all, but I do think that it does bring uh, higher fidelity graphics to lower uh, fidelity devices, uh, a broader spectrum of devices. Um, I think that a lot of this is going to make computer graphics in general and 3D computer graphics more and more prevalent. We should be seeing that more and more often in the web space. And it, it needs to have something like WebGPU to enable that. We can't really have uh, an internet type of a resource dedicated to a single vendor. Um, but you know that that single vendor doesn't need to own the web GPU world uh, to to do its thing. Yeah, and I think Nvidia has got so many things. So much in the hopper. I don't know if they feel threatened by anything. <laughs> so to make to, to be clear, uh, next question. Todd Rains and Alice T Allen Texas writes in: Is Alex Telestrator software ready for beta testing? Uh, so close. Uh, so um, Todd, go ahead and reach out to me. In next first five people listening to this show, then I'll put you on a beta. So if you got to test Discord me, the next five first five people, I'll, I'll put on beta uh, to to test this. So um, we are we are yesterday's build didn't work perfectly so but but with by the end of the week we'll have a build that we can have a handful of people look at um to, to, to do that it's it's pretty i'm pretty pretty uh happy with it <laughs> so it's it's working pretty well so we're, we're very close to the surface now uh, next question a lucky caller number five sorry exactly. uh, steve bauer writes in from seattle washington my mac mini m2 came yesterday what methods of migration from my imac to the m2 would you suggest I have a few unusual modifications like old-fashioned contab entries. Or contab entries, wow. I go, though. Yeah, it depends on how long it's been since you did a serious clean-out of cruft from your system. Um, 
you know, I did one about two years ago, and I'm on the fence when I buy my next machine whether I should use Migration Assistant, which is really convenient and has always worked really well for me, or whether I need to go in and do a, a bespoke, install a completely clean system, and then cherry pick exactly the apps and uh, attendant files that I want to bring over. I have had lots of anecdotal stuff about people who have just simply did migration assistant, migration assistant, migration assistant, and still in the back of their system, there are sometimes hundreds of useless files sitting down there. So I think it's always a good idea if you have the time and the patience to do a bespoke transfer of just the things that are most mission critical. That's particularly important if you make your living with this system and you want it to work uh, really well, because these have been big changes. And the change to Apple Silicon was a pretty big code change. And that would be my preference. That said, Migration Assistant has been good to me the last couple of times I've done it, so I don't want to dismiss it. It's really convenient. Good, Jason. I'm going to file this one under the just because you can doesn't mean you should. Please, especially if you're going from Intel to M1, M2, please take the time to set it up uniquely. Just even if there are a few tiny little files, it's not really about the size of the cruft. It's about what the cruft does writ large to your system and how that will affect your upgrade path from then on. You've spent a lot of money. I, I think it's worth your time to to do this right and just set it up from scratch. Yeah, and um, uh, I never, ever, never, never, ever, ever, never migrate. <laughs> I build every new machine is a new build and I slowly put on what I need to have on it. I don't try to put on every app. No, I, I admit that as a Mac user, I jump into the app store and I just go, I grab all those apps and I just say, just install them all onto this thing. You know, everything that I have. Um, but even now, I've even gotten to the point where I only add what I, what I need. I go, oh, I need that app. And then I just go to the app store and I download it and put it on. Obviously, there's some core production things that, that I need. Um, so, so those things happen, but, but anyway, so I, I would, I would recommend, um, building up from scratch. Uh, next question. Oliver Breidenbrock writes in from Salzburg, Austria. NDI is having a keynote today. I expect questions to be asked tomorrow, but what is needed the most in the next version of NDI? I, I think that support for 2110 is probably out of the question. <laughs> So anyway, so uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what they have that's new. Um, I think you know, obviously, always the the challenge with NDI is uh, CPU overhead and um, stability of the network and system. And so we'll hopefully see more of that. Um, you know, resolution and frame rates are always great. Uh, and I mean, I'll be interested to see what they consider an update. So, um, but I think that we're days away from a lot more, uh, a lot more talk about twenty one ten. Go ahead, John. Using the new Apple AR glasses, I'd like to see all my network traffic, Dante, flowing up through the air, and that would be really cool. Next question. Tony Mobley writes in from Noonan, Georgia. This week, the House of Worship is having an actual live play in the theater 100 miles away from my house. I'm planning to bring a Mac Mini to the theater to play a recording on one of the actors of one of the actors who will not be present is that the way to go? Go ahead, Mark. Well, Tony, I think your Mac Mini will do fine, but I think you also have a MacBook Pro, and that means you won't have to bring a monitor with you. So it's up to you. Uh, go ahead, um, uh, Nick. 
Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, if I have a laptop available, my preference would be to bring the laptop because uh, you've you've got the monitor built in, so you know what's going on on that computer, and you uh, still, of course, have your you know some form of HDMI output, and uh, of course, you also have built-in battery backup. So uh, as long as you're able to make sure that's fully charged before the live event, uh, one other possibility, if you have them, is I really like the the Black Magic uh, the the Micro Hyperdeck. So there's they're about one third rack unit, and so you can have a dedicated device that has its own little monitor and a memory card with the video you want to play in it, and uh, it can be played manually with a push of a button, and it can also be uh, remotely operated over uh, TCP IP uh, on Ethernet. So those are some of the options. But again, the Mac Mini will work fine. So, Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, theaters are a little weird, though, sometimes. So I'm just suggesting, Tony, I don't know if you've had a chance to actually hook your system up to the same thing or the same type of thing it's going to be played out through. I know I've done a couple of uh, demo um, or... Uh, speeches at theaters, and sometimes the interface between the equipment and the outside world and that can be a little squirrely. I've seen weird like RS-230 turp ports as the only input into an old system. So uh, if you can get a picture or something like that of where you're going to be connecting to, or if you've talked to the tech people or anybody at the theater who understands how you're going to get your signal out of your laptop, what adapters you need to get into their system there, that's one of the things that has snapped me in the past, and I've had to do a last-minute order of a particular this laptop into this system. And without that, it's not going to work. So hopefully you've been able to kind of go through that test thing. Next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, BC, Canada writes in, because I'm playing with such shallow depth of field and no autofocus, I need a way I can alert my client who hosts a podcast that he needs to stop leaning forward out of focus. What do you suggest? Comms doesn't work because I'm in the same room. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, ideally, your camera has a focus assist indicator. So like Zebra would be used to indicate overexposure. Uh, the focus assist is highlighting sharp lines of focus. And you, I know with at least Blackmagic cameras, you can configure the color of those highlights. And so if you were feeding the focus assist to a monitor that your talent can see that's right next to the camera, uh, they should position themselves so that that highlight is happening on that monitor. And that gives them an immediate visual indication for themselves as to uh, you know how sharp focus they're in. If they were to lean out of the depth of field, all those little green lines or red lines, whatever color you set them to, would just vanish from their face. And it works. You, know, you can see those indicators from a pretty good distance. So uh, that would be my first instinct. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. So I think Nick hit the nail on the head, but I also wonder, is the person, the podcaster, leaning into the mic? Is the mic sort of drawing them in so that they talk louder? And could you move the mic closer to them? And Bill? I don't want to mess with the talent. I, I would actually change, uh, lo make my iris smaller, get more depth of field. What the most important thing you're sending out is what that presenter is doing. And I try to stay out of their head as much as possible. It's just my thing aesthetics I, don't don't trump the the, yeah, the broadcast i i have to say i'm using a sony fx30 after using a another camera for years 
And it was because I shortened the depth of field and it created such a distraction for me to be constantly thinking about it. And I'm pretty technical. I wouldn't put that on the host. I would, I would, I mean, I, I know this is a horrible thing to say, but I'd buy a Sony. <laughs> like, you know, I'd like to do it, you know, to get something with good autofocus that's going to respond to you as you lean in and out. I know that's an expensive solution, but I think that you really need to think about it because it's, it's really hard to, um, and I think the newer Panasonics do better, but it has been life-changing for me to move to something with great autofocus <laughs> I just have, as I shorten it or increase your depth of field. Um, uh, last question for the first hour. Alex Forty Golner writes in from London, the demise of dpreview.com shows that topic-specific expert sites may be in trouble. Is there kind of detailed coverage threatened by hundreds of videos being uploaded to YouTube each month? Is there any defense for websites like these? Uh, go ahead, Nick. Uh, I think the, the phrase is adapt or die. Uh, you could say the same thing happened to all of the, the magazines that used to be out, that there were several different magazines out covering photographic equipment that filled that function before the internet. And places like DP Review basically knocked those down. Uh, of course, there were magazines on video equipment and all of that. So I, I think the, the defense uh, is to participate in what the media, uh, you know, digestion system of the internet is becoming. Uh, participate in those uh, those video feeds, uh, things like office hours. Uh, it, this this is a medium that is digestible while you're in the uh, gym, on a treadmill, working out. Uh, you can listen to it while you drive, and you can um, even listen to it while you're working. And these are things that, you know, a a forum-based, uh, purely text reading really don't lend themselves. And so, um, you know, the internet is going in this direction for a lot of reasons. And, um, it, you know, participate in that. Uh, or if you stay text-based, there's a good chance that, you know, similar kinds of things will happen to other sites. Yeah, I think that uh, it's going to keep changing. I think that we're going to keep on seeing the market get wider and wider. You know, we've had traditional media, which was a very few number of people going out to a, a very large number of people. Then we had social media, which is uh, a, a, a large number of people going out to a, lar a smaller group, but more vertical. I think the next step is going to be what we're doing here, which is, is something that we would tend to call participatory media, where we're all doing it together. And I think that that's, that's probably the next thing. It's probably not going to have the same numbers, um, but it'll be something that is far more powerful as we move forward. So stay tuned for more information about that. All right. We're jumping into our second hour and Felipe's here. Um, and uh, he, is, he has been working on a Felipe Baez course is, is joining us and he's going to talk a little bit about he's been working on not only the the graphics but just how we're managing a lot of the content it's been really amazing as we get closer to nab um and uh, and i knew that you know as soon as we got into this uh, felipe said well i'm working on something i said well you just do you do you i trust you i know that your taste is better than mine <laughs> so, so just just do what you're gonna do and felipe has just run with it and uh, so we're we thought that it would be good to kind of give people an overview of how we're approaching, um, you know, the graphics. It's not, it's not, you know, we're not trying to build the next uh, th uh, Thursday night football, but we do need to make it work. And it needs to be not only pretty, but it also needs to be efficient. It needs to work inside of a large pipeline. And I, I just don't think we have, we have uh, a better person to work on that than Felipe. So I'm going to hand it off to Felipe to show us a little bit about what he's been doing. Please don't tell me that this is the very first time that you're going to see it. 
<laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. Oh my god! All right, so uh, I prepared just a couple of things here for me to show. So I'm going to be sharing my screen and give it some time for our folks to uh, have that going and let me know once I can go ahead. But for now, there are two things here that I can talk about. Uh, are actually three. One is the workflow for the media, how it's getting to the cloud and then to the editors. And we do and we do see the we do see your your screen. Excellent. So that's my finder, which is actually uh our lucid link place of work here, where everything's gonna be arriving. The second thing is templates. The one of the reasons why this is going to be able to be very fast to work on is because we have templates for everything. We have templates for the Final Cut library. We have templates for the animations. We have templates for lower thirds and so on and so forth. And uh, lastly, I can open these things on motion and take a look at how they're done. But I can tell you in advance, I didn't create from scratch those animations. I have them purchased uh, from Motion VFX. And what I did is I changed them in a way that would be suitable for this office hours coverage and, of NAB. And I want to say that Motion VFX, for those of us using Motion uh, in Final Cut, Motion VFX is kind of the secret weapon. <laughs> so, so if you're Amen. if you're watching it, a lot of us use a lot of us use it. I bought, I don't know how many I've bought, but I buy them. And and exactly what Felipe is talking about is that I don't use them verbatim. I grab them, I I open them up in motion, I look at it and I go, oh, that's really good. And I change a couple things and then it's mine. Um, you know, and it, 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 it's more designed around that. But it is, if you're using Motion and Final Cut, you got to check out Motion VFX because they just, um, they have a lot of great designers that are putting stuff together all the time. Yeah. And if I would be doing this by myself, for example, I wouldn't recreate their 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 templates. I would just use as they are and change within the, publish, uh, the publishing parameters they have there. But because we're going to be uh, sending this to several editors, I wanted to save them again already with those parameters set so they don't need to worry about it. They can just drop them from the templates and start to use. So what is it more interesting here? Do we Should we look at how the files are arriving here and how they're being handled? Yeah. Or give, just us a, give us an overview of how this how this whole workflow works how, how, All right. how, from the point where you get them and what they look like. Even, even just show us what the graphics look like right now. But how they all integrate together. It's just step by step. We got time. All right. So first of all, I have a very nice little website here that once you get to it, you have a little message there, office hours, NAB, put your name and drag your files. That's how we're going to be sending files or one of the ways that we can send files from the feud directly to LucidLink. And this is just an integration that I have in the background. So when I put here, Felipe, and I grab a file, I am going to, oh, I don't have any file here. I'm going to just get this screenshot and put it here and upload. This is going to upload to LucidLink. And it's going to just take a few seconds there in the background. Um, so there is one thing. Once I'm doing that here in ingest, I have my raw content, which, which is where people can that have access to LucidLink can put there the files. For example, if I'm on the field and have access to LucidLink, can just add my files here, add information about when it was shot, what content it is that's going to be that's in those files, and hopefully rename the the, the files as well. So it's not just a c0001.mov. 
Okay. Um, this is basically what we have here in terms of basics. Now, there is a couple of uh, zip files here in the bottom that we're going to be using. One of them is the motion templates that's here as a zip file, but we also have an installer. And can you so, explain how motion templates work? Oh, motion templates. So basically, once we install Final Cut for the very first time and open Final Cut for the very first time, it's going to create a folder on your movies folder. Let me get a new folder here called it motion templates. And within those motion templates, you have transitions, titles, generators, effects, and compositions that you can use directly on Final Cut. So for example, here, if I look for my custom title on Final Cut, I can drag and drop that into my timeline. And here I have a title that I can just edit and and whatever it is that I want. This is in a very simple form is what is included in motion titles. And that's going to go for titles that has animations, um, effects, denoising, and etc. Then can all be done on motion transitions as well. And generators that are similar to titles, but work slightly different. So having those as a pre-done and the pre-setup package can be very powerful, which is what I've done here for the office hours. We have an installer and I just want to show this installer that you can, we can create with a, uh, with a tool called post-production. Uh, it's, um, it's from Digital Rebellion. It's the um, plugin manager. And with the plugin manager, you can actually open the application and say, hey, get these uh titles that i have on my motions folder and create an installer for them so then here i have an installer that when i open say hey office hours nab 2023 version 1.0 do you want to install install any basically install all so you of don't those. have to drag anything anywhere nope. so this knows where it needs to go as long as you know and and basically you have an installer so if you're going to work on this you simply have to open that installer you don't have to know where it goes you, once you hit that once you hit install It'll put it into all the folders that you need, and then you're ready to go, right? Pretty much. That's all. Yeah. And then once Incredible. we have that in Final Cut, you're going to have a, a few different things. You're going to have this category here under Titles. That's OH and AB 2023 that have our call to action. Our thanks for watching to put in the, in the end of the video. There is an intro. There is a lower third. And there is an animation here to add a quote from, from a vendor. There will be also a couple of effects. So hold on, I don't remember. Oh, uh, maybe there are no effects. There is transition. There is a uh, transition for the intro. There is transition for um, parts of the intro. And there will be also... Uh, and the main thing is, is that what, what really speeds things up is that you don't have to recreate this all the time. You don't even have to think about cutting and pasting and it allows us to standardize this whole process. So rather than everyone trying to remember what, what the settings were or anything else, they simply open up that template. It only exposes the controls that they need. So you don't have to have all the controls. You don't have to have all the things. It's not a generalized solution. It's like, I just need you to fix it. I just need to change these things. So here's one example. I have this zip file here that's a folder for a new project. If I just open it, I have a new folder for a project that I will call there here, for example, 001. And the video title will be, let's say, Black Magic, because that's what I'm covering. 
And within that, I have another zip file that's my Final Cut library that now I can just open and it already has a whole structure within it. And on purpose, we have this popping up here, which is, hey, where do you want your media to go in case you import as copy media into the library? So we're, it's not going to copy into the library. It's going to copy in the folder that we set. But this is what we want to do here. For example, I'm going to set to office hours into that folder that I just created, uh, which is my 001 Blackmagic original media, FCP media. Done. That's the only thing. So from here, I have two projects as well. I have a 16 by 9 and a 9 by 16 project. And they are pretty much pre-done. Now, this um, library that I'm using here is with the path for Lucid Link, which is something that I don't have open on this computer at the and time. Can, can you explain Lucid Link and how we're using it? Well, Lucid Link is pretty much the online NAS that we're using. Lucid Link is an object storage based ab abstraction layer of abstraction on top of object storage that basically mounts uh, that object storage pool on your computer, just if like if it would be a hard drive. And from there, anything that gets in, everyone can see that has access. And anything that gets out, deleted, everyone loses access the same way. So it's like a big hard drive that everyone is connected to. And, and, and I am not this, connected. I think, I, you're not connected to it right now. <laughs> I'm not connected on this computer, but I have another computer here that I'm connected to. So for example, let me close this library that I just created on this computer. Go to my second computer here. And look for that same library, which is, I don't even know if I'm looking in the same place here. And oh, Lucid no, this, Link is, this is Lucid Link. And I think we've been working with Lucid Link now on, on this event coverage, I think for almost a year now. I think we're approaching, I think we, as we got closer, I don't, I can't remember whether we use it on last NAB, but we definitely used it as we got ready for the, the June events. And uh, it has been just amazing. And we, you know, we really appreciate the support they've given us. And, and we, uh, um, I think it's really revolutionized how we cover a lot of these events by allowing the entire team to think globally, as well as not, there's so much copying back and forth that we used to be doing that we're not doing anymore. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, that, that it's really worked out really well. Go ahead, Felipe. Yeah. So for example, this computer is with Lucid Link uh, connected and it has everything online here. Now, sometimes you can see Final Cut doing things like this, showing that this is offline, but it's actually online. You can see the bars there all playing and the video animating. Uh, I'm going to go back to my current computer and opening basically the same library that I had before, but linked to my local media and show you what we have here prepared for the editors. We have basically a template in which we have the intro, we have music, we have... Uh, but and so this isn't just a template of motion. It's you're putting in all this template project is most likely the things that you're going to use. So this isn't a template yes. it, itself of just like a motion graphic. This is a project that, hey, if you just replace these things with the footage, you will be part of the way there. And, and it kind of includes that. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And there is there, there are things here that I try to do in order for the editor to not need to guess, for example. If we look closely here in the bottom, we have the intro 
then happens, office hours, and AB 2023. And we have two slugs here in the bottom. They have a cut in between them. And this cut is to signify that the first slug is part of the intro, nothing goes there. And the second one is where the content comes in and where this transition will transition to the content. So for example, if I were to place something else here, for example, my Las Vegas video in the place of this slug and replace, the animation would go straight to it. And this would be the person on camera. So these things kind of remove the guesswork of, hey, how many frames that I put before right. the transition into for us to get there, for example. Right. And of course, you don't have to use the lower third within that time frame here. It really depends what's going to come first. Sometimes you might have B-roll coming first. So you can just move that around and you can edit that lower third as you need here with all of the published parameters that we mentioned earlier when we were talking and, about. And that's that's important. So what happens for a lot of this is that uh, you have motion and in motion you can set up however you want all the animation, all the other things that you want. And then when you publish it out as a template, uh, it is a, um, or, or as a generator or whatever you're gonna, you build it all in motion, but you can publish just the parameters that you need people to use. So you don't have to give them all the controls that you had in motion. You say, well, I just need you to have these these little handles. Uh, they might be the name, it might be the location, it might be whatever those things are. I don't have to give you everything. I just need to give you the thing. And that's a super powerful tool between uh, motion and and Final Cut. Right, and in this case here, for example, it, originally this this lower third animation had uh, other things here, other fonts, uh, other color set, but they are at the moment set in a way that all you need to do is change the name, the last name, and the text that goes underneath the name to have it ready for, for the video. So now I have here the animated Alex Lindsay, Office Hours, and that's it. Pretty easy peasy. Uh, same thing for the subscribe. I put the current number of subscribers that the channel has. And we have here a quote that also the same thing. We can just here come and add, this was an amazing accomplishment. Oh, does accomplishment have double P, KC? I'm not sure. I'm not a native speaker. Maybe. I think you uh, got it right. All right. So, and in the end, we have those 20 second thanks for watching that are very good to have on YouTube that you can add um, the cards here in the end that has a subscribe and the other two videos that go side by side, right? One that YouTube suggests and the other one that you choose or playlist that you choose. Um, That's great. Now, not everyone will be editing on Final Cut. So all of these animations have been done also in ProRes 4x4 and in HVC with transparency. And we have a few... I, I, I exported a few different versions of them. One of them that's empty. Basically, it has just the, the crossfade there of, of the logo. But then there is another one that is to be used as a guide for those that are, for example, in Premiere or DaVinci. So they know the size of the font and etc. So how, how everything gets built there. I have another one that has just the bottom part of his hours panelist and then another one that just says office hours. So you don't need to worry about everything to be done there. And everything has been done on my end 
also with compound clips, because if at some point Alex says, ah, I didn't like, can we change this? I can go there and change this inside the compound clip and it affects everything that has been done. I can re-export those compound clips with the transparency and you explain a little bit about how, how, compound, how compound clips work. Well, compound clips are basically nested timelines. So our mini time, what our timelines period that can open inside other timelines. Uh, and the important thing about a compound clip, the most impressive thing about compound clips. So for example, this purple one here is a compound clip. And if I double click on it, we see it's content. So I have just this title animation. The thing is, if I were to have 10 videos that are using the same animation, not in a compound clip, and suddenly I need to change the information of that animation, I would have to go into 10 different projects and do 10 different adjust adjustments. If I have that uh, animation inside a compound clip and I use the compound clip on the project, all I need to do is go inside the compound clip, do that change, and it affects all of that those 10 edits that I have. So that's why I am using the intro music as a compound clip, the outro music as a compound clip, the subscribe is a compound clip just because I already did the other ones as a compound clip and the lower third as a compound clip as well. Uh, the only thing that I didn't put on a compound clip is the quote that probably will be different from booth to booth. Mm -hmm. um, so also the same with the music. Right now I'm using a song that is not at the moment um, allowed to be used on Office Hours uh, channel. It's allowed on my channel. So it, I have it on a compound clip because the time, as soon as we decide to say, hey, let's use another song, hey, I can just go into the compound clip, put that new song there, and most likely try to fit it within those, those uh, keyframes that they already have here to lower the volume and so on. Are you yeah. using Epidemic for, the, for yours? I am using Soundstripe at the moment. Okay, got it. Cool. Yeah, but I I, act, I think I can add one more channel into my account, so it's possible that I can just add office hours to the account and uh, and yeah, use a lot the, of us, the the song that I have. It's a little bit of a non sequitur. A lot of us use Epidemic because it's so easy to. And it's got lots of it. It puts you can get some stuff in stems. Um, so that's the big thing right. for me is that you can get stems, and so I can say, oh, I want a little bit less drums, or I want a little less guitar, or whatever, and I can pull. A lot of those things out and they're really easy to license across a lot of things and so it's and that's where you would use compound clips as well exactly. you would put all of those stems inside the same compound clip and things that i like to do as well is i don't have anything to really visualize that here but i would make sub roles for each one of those compound of those stems mm -hmm. because then in this view here showing audio lanes i would have all of them showing and within the timeline, I would be able to do the adjustment that I need on a specific right. section. Um, so I like using compound clips a lot for events such as this, that we're going to have multiple edits, edits on the same library, for example. Right. No, absolutely. Um, what else? Is, does anyone we, have any? We, we got a couple of questions stock, stacking up. So let's go ahead and jump into those. Cool. Um, so let's go to the first question. Alex 4D Golner writes in from London, how did you make your motion templates installer app? Well, uh, I took the inspiration from a guy called Alex 4D Golner. Uh, I think his, uh, 
this adjustment layer is created with the same application, which is the plugin manager from Digital Rebellion. It's part of the uh, post manager. I, I forgot what's the, the actual name of the package, but it comes with a lot of very interesting uh, applications. And you can connect if you have an, a developer account on Apple, you add your your certificates there and make the installer work everywhere. So this is a Mac-based installer. And it, it is a Mac-based installer. And it will you can use uh, for plugins for After Effects, I think, and Premiere. Mm -hmm. But since I only use Final Cut, uh, I use it for motion templates. And so basically inside of that installer, do you, you does it have to know exactly what the path is or does it assume that, is it searching for certain folder structures to um, do the install? It, it already looks directly into the, um, uh, what do you call it? The motion templates folder mm -hmm. of that computer that has the installer uh, that you're using the installer. I'm trying to open here the computer that I have the plugin manager uh, installed so I can show you how it, exactly how it works. Um, but once you have that application open, it's going to show you all the titles, all the generators, transitions, and uh, and effects. And you basically will select which ones you want to include in that installer. And here I go. So this is the computer that has the plugin manager installed. So plugin manager. So here it is, all the folders from my motion templates. And if I wanted to just create an installer that has all my titles, I could select uh, titles and then go to create plugin installer and give it a name, give it a version. Uh, here I add information about my account certificate and so on. And then I create the installer and that installer is created. That's great. Really cool. Yeah, go ahead, Bill. So I just wanted to note, you know, I've worked on a couple of really big uh, crew type things where groups of editors come together. What you are seeing here is the reality of what happens when you come to join a bigger organization that is doing something like you're kind of getting access to through office hours here. People come in from all over the world, generally some of the best people, and they are creating exactly what Felipe has done here for us, which is are creating a set of standards, uh, things that you understand the first day to get your machine set up. And then if this is done correctly, it so accelerates the workflow because everybody, all the disparate editors are working to the same set of standards. The type is the same. The transitions are the same. And it just increases productivity so massively if you can have multiple people contributing to a show and doing the same things. Very few in the old days, you had to really talk your way into a TV station or onto a large crew to get access to these kind of ideas. Here through office hours, everybody who's volunteered kind of gets behind the scenes and you can see how this happens in the major leagues when some big, huge company comes together to do something like a conference and needs to crank out a ton of content that all has the same look and feel to it. So I know sometimes it's looking, well, that's just a bug down in the corner. The way it's integrated into a major workflow for a major effort is a huge advantage to you as an editor if you ever seek to work on those bigger crews and understand how this happens. So Felipe, you've done an amazing job and thank you. Some of these things look real simple. There's a lot of complexity behind the scenes and understanding how that complexity interacts with the big event is huge. Yeah, and, and I think that to underline what Bill's saying is that what we're experimenting with is how to do this. There's not many live events or VOD events 
where you have this many people from this many different countries coming together to work on something. It's a very unusual opportunity. And especially in a in a really contained, it might be a big project that lasts for six months, but to have it all happen in, in a week and for us to build all this stuff up. And we're going to start doing this more and more regularly. And what we're doing is we're building these, these pipelines that I will argue don't exist very often anywhere else in the world. And it's going to be by the end of this year at the rate we're going, it's going to be kind of like, yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> like, you know, like that's how we do this, you know, and, and very rarely do people just get an opportunity to do this. You if, to have 50 people working on something. Usually that is a, it's a big crew. You're working for a big broadcaster. You're doing all these other things and it took you 10 years to get there. So the, 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 um, the real experience here, and we're really, you know, fortunate to have people like Felipe and, and, and others that have, that do have experience of distributed production that do have those things willing to, you know, give us a little bit of uh, help um, getting those things going and having us all learn from those things. And so we just really appreciate the support. And, uh, but it's, it's pretty, it's pretty exciting to get to do this because we're getting to, all of us are getting to do stuff that we just wouldn't normally be able to do, um, you know, in, in a day-to-day basis. Go ahead, Bill. Well, I was also going to say, don't let this freak you out to it. Sometimes it looks like this is all veiled and you don't understand it. When you come in the first day, the things that Felipe is talking about today, somebody usually guides you through it. Here's where we keep our information. Here's where you put your things. Once you get that first day out of the way and you understand your orientation, believe me, your work as an editor becomes vastly simpler because instead of having to figure out what to do for the opening, you know, you just drag, you know, I'm opening up this blank preset timeline. It's going to have my opening. It's going to have lower thirds. It's going to have all the things I need and the closing. And so my job is just to do the editing in between these things. And once I do that part of my job, a fabulous finished product emerges because all these art directors and other people have set up these standards to make it look consistent with everything every other editor is doing. Next question. Oh, oh you're going to say yep. something, Felipe? Sorry. Yes. I want to actually share one little a bit of of, uh, of knowledge here is about this application, PostSync. If you haven't heard of this application, I have never seen about this application. This is absolutely fantastic. I'm going to go here and show you exactly what it does. It copies the settings from several applications from your computer to a shared storage, for example, and then every other computer can synchronize to that shared storage and get the same settings. Settings such as for Final Cut, command sets for keyboards, workspaces, effects, column sets, motion wow. templates, wow. and compressor settings and destinations. And then there is for Adobe, there is for Blackmagic, there is for a few other applications such as Handbrake, FFWorks, Edit Ready, Red Cine X. Uh, and what happens here, for example, this computer that I'm using is my primary computer. Is the computer that sends stuff to uh, to right. be synchronized to for others to pick up from, and it it just works as hey, do you want to do everything? Yeah, let's do everything. It will mount my SMB share. That is where I have everything, and it's gonna copy everything. It's, it's basically gonna give me here a report of what's new, what's being copied, and so on. Um, and on the other computers, they open the same application, but they're going to be on the replica mode, basically getting information from the, the, the central repository. And that's it. So, for example, if I didn't have time to create a new installer with modifications that I've done for the templates, this is another way that could be done. I could just 
do the, the, the corrections here, do sync, it syncs to the center place and everyone else just syncs back to their computers. That's great. Yeah. And, and again, we're going to keep on using these, uh, these different events as an opportunity for us to not only learn it, but to get it to a point where it's just kind of considered table stakes you know, on, on how we do this. And we're going to learn how to, I think we're going to keep scaling because it's just an incredible op production opportunity to work on. Uh, let's go to, let's go to the question here. Don't, yeah, don't move forward. We, we didn't get to this one. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, next question here. Michael Graves writes in from Houston, Texas. How does LucidLink compare with Dropbox? Good, Felipe. Well, there are a lot of differences between those two. First of all, Dropbox um, generally speaking, you're going to sync your files to a device on your computer. There is now the what they are working on. They have been working on it. It is working the file is streaming uh, so you see everything that's on your dropbox and then when you need it you download it it's file based it's not block based so for you to start working on a file such as a video you would need to finish downloading the whole video before you can start working on it second thing is it, uh, going forward dropbox will be using the file provider api from apple on macs that means that you're not going to be able to have on-demand file on external drives until Apple allows that with their APIs. So that that's where things start getting a little complicated using Dropbox for such a thing. Can, now, can you explain a little bit about file-based versus block-based? Right. So I don't know if I'm the best place to a person to explain that, but for example, uh, blocks you can imagine those as extremely small sizes of information that together uh, make up a file. Sometimes if you, for example, open a video and go to the middle of the video and hit play, you're just accessing the blocks or that's those bits of, of, of information from the middle of the video forward. Uh, then you don't need to download anything before that. And with a file based, your computer will only understand that thing is complete and ready to be used once the whole file is there. With the block based, block based is basically your SSD. Your SSD is block based. So that's how it's working with uh, with the cloud. I know that's not a great explanation, but yeah. Um, yeah, we've gone through a lot of data here today. Uh, if you have more questions, go ahead and throw them in pretty quickly. Uh, otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up pretty soon. Uh, let's go to the next question. Alex Forty Golner writes in from London: Is twenty nine nine seven p mandated, or can someone shoot at a different frame rate? Good, Felipe. Well, mandated? No. Is it the best way for us to go forward as a team? Because there will be many cameras shooting. And there will be a lot of editors uh, editing. Yes, that would be the best way. Now, 2997Y, it could be 30p round as well. Refresh rate, we're going to be filming a lot of screens. We're going we're gonna to have lights all around. So we don't want those to be blinking. It's possible to make them not blink with 25 and 50 frames a second. But then you're changing. You're having to do your calculations with your shutter speed. And if anything is a little bit different, you might have lights that are blinking, lights that are not blinking. So yes, 2997 is what we're going to be shooting and going to make sure that we're using our shutter speeds also in multiples of uh, 30. Good, Bill. 
Yeah, the American uh, electrical system is 60 hertz, which makes 30 and 2997. Uh, everything video-wise and the lighting in America is all kind of, it speaks this natively. When you get into other things, the problem that Felipe is bringing up, I've gotten footage from over in the PAL countries and things like that. And yeah, you have to apply some processing to it or it sometimes beats against the frequency of the lighting in a shot. And that's just no fun. And as we look at the streaming, uh, most of the platforms that we stream on YouTube, Facebook, other others, they're doing 30. <laughs> you know, we can do, we could do theoretically 60. Um, the problem with that is it takes up a lot more bandwidth. It means that we have a lot more to upload. And in, in addition to all the things that Felipe said, which is that we might have, so 30, you're pretty sure that your frame rate and your uh, refresh is going slower than all the monitors and all the lights around you. As you go to 60, that is unknown because it means that your shutter is now at 120, um, which is twice the cycle of, um, so your shutter speed typically is 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 half the time or twice the number of your frame rate. So if you go to 60 frames a second, your shutter is now, instead of being 1 60th, it's 120, uh, 1 120th. And that's going to mean that that you are now going faster than many of the installed lights. And so that is something that we are going to see because we are going to test streaming. Um, funny thing about 60 is that um, we're going to talk about this tomorrow. It's very hard to find an audio embedder at 4K that can also do 60 frames a second. <laughs> In fact, almost impossible. Maybe, maybe impossible. It may be something that we're actually looking at, looking for at NAB. Go ahead, Felipe. Well, there's the other thing also to consider here. A lot of the vendors uh, that are going to have booth at NAB, they're coming from Europe. You're also going to see them with their monitor set to European refresh rates because they might not have tested yet with cameras locally. So right. those are type of things that we're going to see when we get there. And the only way for us to figure a lot of this stuff out is to do it. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. We're, we're going in. Uh, we are, you know, one of the one of the things that as you look at how we're approaching this stuff, and even tomorrow, I'm going to talk about it because there's still moving parts and what we're doing and everything else with audio is that it is a, um, it, there's a temptation to put a lot of structure into it. But the problem is we can't see what's possible if we put too much structure into it at the very beginning. So we're going, okay, we are putting some structure in. So this graphics, we know based on pri previous shows, this is what we need. But it was, you know, it's, it's, it's getting more and more refined each time in the same sense um, as we, what we shoot, how we shoot, how we stream. These are all things that we're going to experiment with. And then, you know, a year from now, we will have been through five or six iterations. You know, we're already through four, th four or five iterations up until now. And so we're going to be able to kind of refine that experience. But the, the key is for us to do it as open-ended as we can. We have as much structure as we know we need based on past experience, but not more than that so that we can keep on seeing what's possible and also what's what's needed. Um, next question. Nick Jeshishan writing in from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Is there any special formatting, pipeline steps, et cetera, to prepare these graphics for use in ATEMS or Decklink playback? Go ahead, Felipe. For someone like me that I don't have uh, um, a way to do alpha on my ATAM uh, and from my HyperDeck itself, I mean, could, but I don't, uh, we could do Luma here for for uh, for those for those titles. Uh, if someone, I think, I don't know which one Alex prefers. So if it's the Luma here for this or if it's, uh, it's key. Yeah, so we have a capable of doing a couple of different things. So um, typically, these these go out as frame sequences, and I'm actually not sure which frame sequences or how we're building those out for 
you know, for how we feed them into the normal office hours. So we use SPX um, is the is the graphics system that we use, and that does a key fill. So we can load graphics into that, and I believe that those are ping sequences, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and so those are one one way to format these is as a ping sequence that we can then in, incorporate into it. The for the larger black magic switchers they have caches and so in those caches we can throw um sequences into it you can use a ping sequence i recommend a tga so and here's the tricky part about the tga sequence the tga will comp better and this has to do with and has to be pre-multiplied black so th this is a good question because it's a pretty detailed problem um so you with a black magic switcher the way that keying works um is that you know you have a you have an image uh, let me see if I can put that, turn that back on. Um, you have an image and then you have the alpha channel. And what happens is, is that it takes the alpha channel and it multiplies it to the background. So, it, and what that does is it knocks a hole out. And then it, and then typically what it does is it inverts that alpha channel and it knocks, it basically, um, it inverts the, the alpha channel and knocks the, what would be the surrounding area out of out of so if you have a circle here this is you know this will it knocks a hole out and here it knocks the entire area around it out and then it adds those together <laughs> that's how that's the math of how a closet works problem with the black magic switcher is that it doesn't do this knockout so it just does it just knocks the hole out and then it adds it <laughs> and so it will work as long as you pre-multiply your background. So it means that whatever your graphic is has to be black, and then it has, to, and then it has whatever. Otherwise, it'll you'll see it showing up over top of what you're doing. So that's the only thing we have to think about, and it works well with a TGA sequence with a with the color in the TGA and the alpha channel in the black, and you get better edges on TGA than ping in my experience. And now Blackmagic will save it out, but I think they're doing something to the edge. But when you're normally setting out, here's the trick. There's only one app that we that can reliably set, do a TGA sequence of an animated file, and that is After Effects. <laughs> so, so and and uh, and and it's and it, it is uh, uh, you can you can do it. The, the the other way to do that is uh, Affinity Photo will will export TGAs mostly because people like me ask for it specifically so that we can get TGAs for. But you have to batch process it to go through it to convert ping coming out of uh, motion into it compressor will convert to a TGA, but it converts to compressed TGA, not uncompressed TGA, which means it doesn't work. <laughs> so then you still have to go to After Effects and open it up. It's so close. Anyway, so so anyway, uh, uh, so that's the, that's the way you do that with the file-based systems. The other option is if you have a HyperDeck, a mini HyperDeck, um, or any of the newer HyperDecks, they'll do key fill output. So they'll have two signals, two SDI signals, and they'll push those out um, as key fill. You can also do that with um, Softrons on the air. You can do it with um, uh, QLab. All of those, you know, um, MIDI uh, will all do key fill outputs. Presenter Pro will, will do key key fill output. So all those software will do to it. You do need to have an SDI based system. Uh, the HDMI system will not keep the frames locked together, and as a result, they you'll see sometimes if you have a lot of animation, you'll see like a little edge appear and disappear as as the frames don't quite line up uh, perfectly and it won't be the same every time <laughs> go ahead bill 
Well, I was just interested. Felipe uh, posted a video on YouTube just the other day about his kind of automated workflow where uh, people who are on the show floor shooting stuff, and he, I understand, is shooting an 8K at NAB and can toss those into a workflow that does the transcoding and the uploading to LucidLink almost automatically. I was just really fascinated by that because I think that's the future of whatever you're shooting on to be able to toss it into a workflow and have it come out the other end for the editing team functionally fast usable is pretty powerful. Can you talk us through a little bit about what that's all about, Felipe? Yes. First, uh, the problem. What was the problem to be solved there, right? Uh, I have a friend of mine, an editor in Brazil, and he is going to be helping me editing for my channel. Uh, his uh, internet connection is not might not be that fast. So I needed to get him smaller files and allow him to eventually reconnect to the bigger files or he sends me back to edit and I reconnect to the big files on my end. So that's problem number one. Problem number one, oh, problem number two is the same as problem number one. In office hours, we have editors everywhere and not everyone has an amazing connection. And also depending on how far you are physically from where LucidLink is using servers. So for example, right now, I think you're using servers in the United States for, for LucidLink, whoever it is, for example, in Australia, it's not going to have uh, an amazing connection to it. It's just physics. Um, now, because of that, what I did was to create a watch folder on Compressor where as soon as a new file comes in, it creates compressed versions of that video, 720p, 1080p, and 4K. So the first thing that gets to the cloud storage and is the first thing that's going to be available to anyone is the smallest version. So then they can actually get that, start editing. And as time goes, as soon as they finish editing, they might have already been able to download the 4K or the 1080p version and upgrade that link on their NLE to that. So that's what I was trying to solve. The other thing that I was trying to solve, of course, is that web uploader I wanted to have also similar feature in which if you upload to it, it also triggers a transcode in the background. So then that's why I created that. Uh, if you type transcode in the name, it goes to a folder that's already being watched by Compressor and then Compressor will, will create those versions in the background. That's great. Jason, very cool. Uh, I just wanted to augment something that Alex said because I, I realized that we, we added it without any context. Um, you can think of Targa um, TGA as, as kind of a bitmap with an alpha channel that is part of the spec. That's the easiest way to think about it. And it's, it is universally compatible. It's actually an extremely old format. Very old. <laughs> 30 years old, I think. Probably the first, I think it might have been the first file format that had an alpha channel, like maybe other than maybe a TIFF file. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana writes in, how about opening up the video storage and graphics after NAB for people not currently in the NAB editing teams? You know, uh, assuming that, that Felipe is open to it, I think the graphics is not, you know, uh, that's easy for us to make available for people to play with and look at and, and see how it works and so on and so forth. We probably won't open the video storage. Uh, that's part of our problem. That's part of our partnership with LucidLink. I don't think that we're, uh, you know, that that adds cost on their end, you know, for us to make it a, more widely available. 
And uh, so really the way to, and the, really the way to learn how these things all work is to jump on the teams as we go forward. So we'll have another, you know, after this, we'll have another team that works on another project. And uh, I would highly recommend being on these teams. Uh, it is going to be an incredible, you learn working on a large team on a project that is bigger than what you can do by yourself. Uh, you'll learn 10 times what you would learn on your own, even just covering the same event, <laughs> like, you know, doing what you're doing, learning for, you're learning from other people, you're learning bigger systems, you're learning how to integrate with a large team, uh, you're getting to do things that, that are, have a higher profile. And so all those things I think are really valuable. And so I would highly recommend jumping on the team to learn really how these things work, but making the graphics available later for people to play with, I think is totally fine. Assuming that Felipe is okay with that. Um, you know, yeah, we're, we're happy to make that, make that available, um, but I would highly recommend playing with that a little bit. But when you see these teams come up, this is a, a really cool opportunity that you don't get very often. Uh, you know, for most people, you never get these opportunities. And I think that we're also building and figuring out who can do these things because, you know, we'll have members that are hiring each other based on what they see people able to do over time. So it's a place to not only train and learn, but a, a place to, prove yourself and eventually potentially hire others or get hired. Um, next question. Tommy Chance writes in from St. Paul, Minnesota. It seems like this is all locked into the Apple apps. Is there any room to take this into resolve? Yeah, go ahead, Felipe. Uh, absolutely. First of all, if we start from the very beginning, when I said that I used a template from Motion VFX, Motion VFX is creating the same type of work for DaVinci. So we could go and buy the DaVinci templates, for example, and modify them and use directly on DaVinci. Uh, the second thing is the way I created is I gave here the option for us to use in any NLE. So we, I have already exported the ProRes four by four version with the animations, things that are going to be, would be difficult to reproduce uh, on the other NLEs and they can be just put there on, onto DaVinci. What I can do is I can create a DRP that already has those elements directly on a timeline, just like with Final Cut, basically having a template and start from there. So I can, I can have that as well. Good, Jason. I'm not sure if I speak for everybody, but uh, the chances are, I think a lot of the editing is going to be done in Final Cut. Here's the deal is, is that I, you know, and, and I will say that I've used all the apps. Um, I rarely use Avid and Premiere. I will admit freely. I probably use today, I probably use Resolve because of the kind of work I do. I probably use Resolve more than Final Cut on an average day-to-day -day basis based on, because I need precision audio and video that I have a hard time figuring out how to do. I'm not saying you can't do it in Final Cut, but I have a hard time figuring it out. And in Resolve, I, I understand how that works. Um, and so so I think that, um, and I also use Fusion inside of Resolve. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit tied into having my effects pipeline built into my editor at this point. So, so I'm, I'm a, I, you know, I would say that I, again, I'm, I go back and forth between Final Cut. Anything I need to go quickly that I don't need to do HDR or surround or anything else, I immediately go to Final Cut. <laughs> so, so it's like because it's just way faster. So, um, for this kind of event coverage, we are going to allow people to do it in other platforms, but I. I just flat out think it's a little nutty, <laughs> like you know, just, just so you know, like to try to to do it in other platforms. It's not that the, the platforms are are not as good. I think that they're in many ways more refined in for the kind of work, other kinds of work. 
But for doing fast turn, I need to get this done quickly. I need it to look good. I need it to be formatted. I need it to come out the, the way I need it, you know, and, and I want to just slap, 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 slap things together. Final Cut is so much faster than the other than the other options. And again, I'm speaking as someone who now is probably getting to a point where I'm I'm not quite there yet, but I'm probably more facile in, in Resolve than I am in Final Cut. And I still would go back to Final Cut to finish things quickly because of the, the magnetic timeline, the process, you know, all of those things are just way faster to, to use, in my opinion. Go ahead, Felipe. And taking what you said and what Bill said, actually, this event would be the ideal scenario for anyone that wants to try Final Cut for the first time to go and try because yeah. you're going to have a lot of things pre-built for you. So it allows you to do the edit quickly and still start learning how it's working and how it's behaving and so on. So I, I would take this opportunity to take a look at Final Cut as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones from Brea, California writes in, the old term was NTSC safe. So are there any restrictions you placed on these NAB graphics? Good, Felipe. Well, because this is all going to YouTube, to digital monitors, to phones, what I did was to test this on very widescreen phones with curved edges and make sure that the that everything is safe, is safe for those edges so they don't get cut. But I'm not doing the old NTSC uh, safe because it wastes a lot of space on the screen. I don't know how if Alex agrees or disagrees with that. But for, for now, that's what I did. I'm trying to maximize as much as possible the, the usage of the screen. There you go, Bill. Yeah, NTS, you say, is actually broadcast safe, and it's a standard that was important for broadcast television, and it clamped a lot of values to make sure that nothing overdrove a transmitter outside of the regulations that that had put on it. Uh, if you're delivering to the web, and most people are watching on phones and things like that, it, it's really great in Final Cut, and I'm sure Resolve, and I'm sure uh, Premiere have the same thing, a filter you can drop on it and say, clamp everything to be safe for broadcast. That's great. And if you have to go to broadcast, there you go. But there's no reason to work to that standard in the modern era. Uh, the the non-broadcast safe formats give you a lot more flexibility and a lot better looking footage. And I just realized that I talked about title safe instead of NTSC safe. Well, Sorry. but I think I think title safe is, I think, might be the question here. And so I think that you know, if you if you think about a screen, what happened was in the old days and back in the day that there was a in CRTs and, and other things like that, you actually had to make the screen, the screen itself was a little bit bigger than the bezel because it was rough looking on the outside. There were little lines, there were little, little lines that appeared down at the bottom. And so what we did is we we started creating, you know, that so we, we had a bezel that went over top of a lot of that, that hid all the ugly stuff you know, from what we were looking at. But what it meant was you didn't actually see the whole image. So we would create an image that you weren't seeing the whole image. And so what we learned to do is build what we call action safe. Um, let me see if we can get another color there for you. So that this is action safe here. And then we had, and that was typically 10% smaller than the full frame. And then we had um, title safe, which was in inside of here. And title safe was 20% smaller than the frame. We have a cross to make sure we're centered and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, so these were what we considered. These are safe and you're, you know that you're going to be where you need to be to make that actually happen. And so that is the, you know, that's where a lot of this NTSC stuff comes. The reality though is, is that our new monitors that people buy in the last 10 years don't, have, don't do that. <laughs> They're LCD. They don't have CRTs. They're not covered up by bezels. They have, you see the whole image. 
there's a handful of the old, cheaper ones that are older that you might have a little bit cut off, but it's very rare. And so it's not worth designing for anymore. In, in my opinion, it's not worth designing for anymore. And so I'm quite happy with, you know, for a while until five years ago, we were still designing for uh, standard def, you know, where we were putting all of our graphics in the center and we were pulling everybody down. But now we're just using up that whole frame. And and I don't, I'm as as people may guess, I'm I'm not really a past oriented kind of uh, producer. I'm like, this is the present and the future. I don't really it, more than two years old. I don't really care. <laughs> like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not looking backwards. You know, you, people. You know, you, you really limit how fast you can move forward when you when you tie yourself to the past. Um, next question. Ronnie Hofsey from Tromsø, Norway, writes in: Can we also try to make graphics for LumaFusion just to geek out and play? Good, Felipe. Sure, I can try. I don't know if I can promise that I would be able to deliver that before NAB because we're so close already. Yeah, and, but, and I'm going to, yeah. I, I will say, I'm going to be using LumaFusion for a handful of my images as a test. So what I'm going to be doing is cutting some of some pieces, but I'm not, uh, I'm going to probably take some of the graphics there and, and see what I can do, I'll go as far as I can with it. Um, but really, I, I do want to try to use LumaFusion. So I'm going to have an iPad. I'm going to have a little case for it. I'm going to shoot some stuff with it and try to edit, you know, everything that I'm doing, you know, there. It'll probably be just a handful of them um, just because I don't have, it's mostly because I don't have time to edit them myself. So, but I but I do want to play with that as a test case because I think that this is a great utilization of LumaFusion in general as a production pipeline for those that are on the ground. But I think that the pipeline we're trying to build overall, and the reason that LumaFusion doesn't necessarily lean into the whole thing other than me doing a couple tests, is that uh, we are building a pipeline around people on the ground. And this is a really powerful model. Almost nobody does this at, at events. So I just want to kind of like everyone's huddled around in the press room or they're working on something or they've got a room somewhere that they're all trying to do post-production. We're bringing in a much different level of production um, because we can and because of the support of, you know, the the the, the asset people that we have, the support of uh, a variety of vendors, so on and so forth. We're able to do this thing, which is that we are... Um, uh, one of the things that's really interesting as we go go down this path is that we're building a system where we have more people online and less people on the ground and we're able to magnify the capacity of the people on the ground and we're not going to do it perfectly this time we're going to figure this out but we're going to be we can magnify so we can have 15 people on the ground 35 people what happens when we have 15 or 20 on the ground and 100 on you know online able to just share and people on the ground only have to think about shooting and they're just shooting and shooting and shooting content. And you have a huge group of people that are up online that are sitting there pulling it down and cutting it. And we're going to get to a point where, you know, it's 24-7. I mean, there is an enormous amount of content just flowing out about a, a given conference. And the people who can't make it, I don't think that, it, and by the way, I don't think a lot of people say, well, people aren't going to want this because people won't want to go to the conference. Conference is addressing 0. 0.000001 of the addressable market. <laughs> like the people who go are going to go. In fact, more people might want to go because they see more of what the conference is. But what it, what it's going to mean is for the people who don't have money, don't don't have the money, the time, the visas, the you know all the things that are going on, they can really experience this. And no one's done that. And that's what we're trying to do. Is no one's really created something where you really experience the conference. You know, they have a place to sit around and talk about it. They might do a couple little hits. But where we're going is taking this to a point where you really feel like I I saw most of the conference, 
you know, online. Again, I think that it makes the conference more interesting to people to go visit because there's a lot of things you can't do, like have dinners and meet with people and do all the other things that you can do at a conference. I think that's why people go. But for the people who can't, we want to make sure we're bringing it to them. Um, and at first we'll cover conferences. We might think about doing them at some point, um, taking what we learned and building something that is really designed for exactly what we're doing. Now, next, next question. I, for one, am only going for the dinner because that's the only part that the coverage doesn't have anything to do with. Uh, John Tenhouse from Minneapolis, Minnesota writes in, are all the graphics going to be real time or is there a plan for post-event edits? Uh, It's all of what Felipe showed was is for the post event <laughs> so those are all things that are happening in final cut so so there is um we I, I i think we will have some graphic we're keeping the graphics pretty simple for the live actually we're just using our standard graphics here we're not trying to turn up that and a lot of that had to do with the fact that it just takes a huge lift on our end right now to make those conversions so really what you're seeing is the graphics that we're using are not real time i mean they're rendered almost in, i mean they're rendered in real time in final cut but they're not designed as a real time solution next question Alex Forty Golner writes in, "What will follow? Uh, what will the workflow be for day or theme compilations?" Now go ahead, Felipe. I'm not sure I understood the question. Um, if the question is being, "How will we treat the media? How it gets from the floor to the editors and then to YouTube?" Then it will be uh, me shoot. I'm shooting uh, a video. I hand over to a DIT that's in the press room. They're going to upload that to Lucidlink. Editors will be notified that there is new media for them to work on. Editors work on that. And then uh, a few key people have access to YouTube. They upload it. I don't know if that's exactly what you asked. Yeah, but that's, and that's, and I think that, yeah, we're not, we're not changing the graphics dramatically for any specific theme or anything else. Again, a year from now, maybe so. You know, like, you know, this is all, even though this is probably going to be, I'm going to guess either the most advanced or one of the most advanced coverages of NAB this year. Uh, this is just the beginning. Like, you know, we are, you know, when we, you know, we're going to, every single event is going to get more refined and take this, take what we learned here and we're going to step it up. Like this is more refined from what was there before. And IBC was more refined from what was there before. And why, you know, like each one of these, is we're we're turning up those that volume and figuring out the, the process. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, if you close your eyes and dream and imagine what you think covering a large trade show is going to be like in five years, it's not hard to project out. I mean, you know, I'm interested in lighting. Let me log into the channel that has great coverage of lighting at NAB. There will be a team there, an assignment editor. There will be multiple people shooting. They will be aggregating, applying metadata to this. And if you are particularly interested this year at NAB and let's say color balance fluorescence, which will probably be gone by then, you'll be able to search out and get not only content like these shorts and other things that have been created and archived, but also maybe the chance, and this is, I think, part of Alex's vision, maybe there will be a reporter on the floor who will be covering those kinds of things and he'll be able to get a question to the show floor and get an interactive answer back no matter where you are on the planet. If that comes to fruition over the course of the next many years, it really does change the dynamic of what trade show participation means for the widest possible group of people around the world. So that kid who has a real passion for 
uh, lighting in Brazil mm -hmm. gets the same access to being on the show floor and getting his question answered that somebody who was able to buy the ticket and go to NAB gets. Yeah, and, and I think that I 100% agree. And I think that the vision that I hope, you know, that we get to at some point is that is what, what to what Bill's talking about. On the first couple of days of a conference, there is just an insane amount of content going out. Like just, you know, like there's just hundreds of, you know, like again, not what we're doing this time. <laughs> Maintain everybody, manage everybody's expectations. It's going to be a lot of content. But imagine, uh, you know, if we had 150 people online and we had, you know, 20, 30 people on the ground and we're pushing out, you know, in the first two days, we push out two or 300 point, you know, um, things and they're in playlists. So they're lighting, there's a lighting playlist and there's a sound playlist and there's a video playlist and there's a, a streaming playlist of all the different coverage that we did of those different things. And then as we do that, it, it transitions to live to exactly what Bill's talking about, where we have three or four things. And, and it, at first it will be something that is, um, you know, we're jumping to audio for, you know, so the idea is that we schedule two or three hours of live audio. We're in the audio area or we're in a couple live views that are bouncing back and forth between different live, you know, um, experiences or, I mean, or, or different audio booths. And we're kind of allowing you to answer all those questions. You saw a bunch of coverage already. You can now ask the questions that you want. Um, and then the, and then what happens is, is that we eventually start doing something where it's literally all day that we're covering all these things live and we're going from section to section to section. At some point we get to a size where there's just the audio track, you know, that's running eight hours a day and the video track that's eight hours a day. And the, and these are big tracks. And, you know, so you have potentially thousands of people watching, but they're in their track. They're watching the live stream. Maybe they're doing a split screen, <laughs> seeing what's interesting. Like I'm not interested in this video thing, but this audio thing looks good. But the idea is there's a huge number of streams that are going out that are covering these things. There's, there's tons of VOD that you can watch in the area that you're interested in. There's live streams where you can ask those questions. So those are the kind of things that that's where we're, you know, what we're trying to get to five years from now. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, like, and this is, you know, what we did, la the incredible work done last year, what we're working on this year is our baby steps towards, you know, a whole different kind of coverage. And I do think that people that are doing this coverage and figuring this out are going to look at their own conferences. We're doing them around a specific set of conferences and we're doing them around a specific thing because that's what we do. People are going to take what they're learning here and they're going to sell it as a product to other people, other conferences, <laughs> we can do this for you. Like, look at, so as we figure this out, this is our lab for us to figure it out and all of us to learn. And some of us will go out, not, not me, I'm going to stay focused on this part, <laughs> but, 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 um, but someone here may say, well, I'm really interested in construction. So I want to cover construction, but we, all the things that we learned and because we're, it's an open-ended thing and we're teaching everybody else how to do it. A bunch of people here will go, well, why don't we cover World of Concrete and we're going to do the same thing, but we're going to go to World of Concrete and say, pay us $100,000 and we'll do this thing for you that includes the rest of the world. So we're hoping to that, that like what we do with Office Hours, that this project is building capacity, building, you know, things that we can, that members can do what they want with down the road, learning from the, the testing that we're doing. Anyway, Felipe. Thank you so much for the work that you've done for the for the show, as well as coming to share all this with you, with us. Um, can't wait to see how it goes. <laughs> I'm sure some of it will work, some of it won't. Uh, but I think that uh, I think that we have the best chance we possibly could to make things, you know, to add these graphics because of the work that you've done. And and I'm really excited to see the the um, the workflow next next week. Remember, for everyone, 
next Friday. So we're going to go do this all next week. And then next Friday, we're literally not going to even allow the wounds to heal. We're just going to immediately get up there on Friday and we're going to talk about what worked and didn't work. <laughs> you know, like, in, and then how it worked and what the upload issues were and what the other things are and how great Felipe's model worked. And, um, you know, those are, those are, yeah. So, so all of those things are coming up. So stay tuned for that. It should be a, a great, it's going to be a great experiment. Um, thanks to the to the producers for all the great questions that kept us rolling through uh, the hours, the, uh, both hours. And uh, thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. And we also can't do it without the incredible team on the back end. Small little village shows up every day. I love, you know, it's so great. You guys don't get to see this if you're watching the stream. But there's this great little family of people who are, you know, when you come to, it's not just that we just show up on a Zoom. You know, we show up and you get into the, there's a room and we have to test our comms and we have to do something goofy. And and then we and we talk to people and they're checking our levels and they're doing all the stuff. And there's a bunch of people and you're like, hey, how's it going? And it just gets me, I have to admit, it just gets me into the zone. Like, I'm just like, okay, I'm ready to ready to have a show uh, in a way that I wouldn't if, if we had it any other way. So there's just an incredible team that's putting all this together and we really appreciate all of you. All right, we um we have we've done a little traveling today. Uh, let me see here. We have the Tlaloc Traversal, one hundred and twenty thousand miles. Felipe makes it easier because we have to travel to Felipe for these questions all back and forth. One hundred twenty thousand <laughs> miles, one hundred and ninety three thousand kilometers, uh, and nine hundred and fifty three million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours. Not gonna miss the Sparrows Pizza in the Las Vegas Convention Center. I, oh, <laughs> oh, so oh, I mean, oh. I, I literally you have a taste for heat lamp pizza. Is that what you're telling me? There's somewhere a snake. Are very good burgers. Felipe, looking forward to seeing you again, dude. Sleep done. <laughs>